Let us then return to these verses that we read in Amos chapter 2 for our meditation tonight. We're going to look at verses uh, from verse 4 of chapter 2 on to chapter 3, verse 2. We did look at the first three verses of chapter 2 last Wednesday evening in our introduction to the book of Amos. And chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord will roar from Zion. And this is what he's beginning to do here now. He is, through the prophet Amos, he is beginning to address his own people. The Lord was going to roar from Zion. Well, we're going to continue to look at some of the things that Amos had to say. Why did the prophet Amos preach against the sins of God's people? Why did he? Why did he highlight the sins of God's people? Well, when we answer it, we're going to modernize the words somewhat. And the answer is because the sins of Christians are worse than the sins of unbelievers in the sight of God. That's why. That's why he highlights the sins of God's people. Now the sins of the Gentiles who knew not God were vile. They were terrible. We're not going to excuse them. But in the sight of God, the sins of his own people were worse. And that's what we're going to find out here, beginning here, and as we go through this book here. And that's why I want to give uh, a title to our meditation tonight. They are worse. Who is the they? Well, it's their sins. Their sins are worse. The sins of God's people are worse and the sins of the heathen Gentile nations that surrounded Israel. Last week, just briefly to recap, Amos denounced the sins of the nations around Israel. And what can we say about these nations? And what can we say about their sins? Well, they can be summed up in one or two words. They were over-the-top cruel. War is not pleasant. It's not a Sunday school outing. War is a terrible thing. And terrible things happen in war. But many of these nations, when they were engaged in warfare, they went beyond. They were extremely, extremely cruel. And God noticed it. And God was going to deal with them. And another thing that they did, they consigned people to slavery. And basically, they were, they were using people for profit. They were looking upon people, people like you and I, people like themselves. They were using them simply as things in order to make money. And the Lord saw this and found fault with it. Edom, for instance, they had a terrible sin that might not seem a terrible sin to you and I when we look at, at it. 
But Edom held a long-standing hatred of Israel. And of course they were, as we saw last week, they were related. They were brothers in some sense, yet they had a long-standing hatred that went on for years and years and years. And it manifested themselves itself when they handed, or they, delight, they were delighted when Jerusalem was ransacked, when they should have been sorrowful at the very least. And Tyre was taken to task because they had reneged on a, on a brotherly covenant. There was a, there was a good relationship between David and the king of Tyre, and that relationship extended to David's son Solomon and the king of Tyre. But somewhere along the line, that relationship was broken, and these individuals in Tyre didn't look upon that friendly covenant that they had with David and Solomon. They were prepared to dispense with it. Well, the Lord noticed it, and the Lord did not approve of their actions, and he was going to take them to task for it. Ammon, what happened to them? Well, they were killing defenseless women and unborn children. War's not pleasant, we know, but that should never happen. Ordinarily, that should never happen. And here they were venting their anger upon people who couldn't defend themselves, like pregnant women and the unborn, slaughtered to satisfy their cruelty. And Moab, as we saw, or as we read here, for desecrating the dead, a terrible crime, an inhumane crime. Well, these were some of the things. But now, now he's, as we said last week, he was merely introducing his subject here. And he was trying to get their ears. He was trying to get an audience. We don't know how he went about and actually delivered this, this prophecy. That's not important. It may have been in the open air. It may have been somewhere else where people gather. We don't know. But we're not to assume for one moment that, 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 that there was nothing logical in it. There was, there was something very logical in it. He wanted to get an audience. He wanted to, people to listen to him. And he began then first to outline the sins of their enemies. And you can just imagine how they felt when they heard this. Oh, we like this individual here. We like this prophet. He's telling us things that we like to hear. He had a ready audience. And when he had this audience, then he was going to come to the very meat of his message. The lion or the Lord was truly now going to roar, and they were not going to like what he was going to draw to their attention. Well, as God was going to have his day with the Gentile nations who were surrounding Israel, Amos is saying that God is going to have his day with his people. That's what he's saying. All, all the Gentile nations here, apart from one, all the Gentile nations here had badly treated God's people. And God had seen their sins, and God was going to do something about it. Moab was slightly different. 
Moab uh, mistreated another one of these Gentile nations. And God again was going to deal with that incident and that people also. But God was also going to deal with his own people. He was going to pinpoint their sins and because they were his people, they were his professing people, they were going to fall under the judgment of God as well. They were not going to escape. And therefore, having got their ears up, he now begins to speak directly to the people of God. In verses 4 and 5, for instance, he deals with Judas' sins. Now, and then 4 and 5, Judas' sins, and then 6 to 16, it's, it's Israel's sins. But we read on to chapter 3. And what does chapter 3, verse 1 say? Hear this word that the Lord hath spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt. Now, he does speak to Judah and he does speak to Israel, but what he is saying here is this word is for the whole of the people of Israel. Now, maybe I maybe should explain here for some who are maybe not too familiar with the Old Testament. In David's day and in Solomon's day, Israel was the 12 tribes of Israel. They were a united kingdom, the 12 tribes. David was king over them. They had peace. He united the 12 tribes. They had a, a wonderful time with David. Then when he passed on, Solomon, his, his son, took over. There were still the 12 tribes and they enjoyed a time of blessing and peace. But after when Solomon went the way of all the earth, there was a split. There's always splits in the people of God, but there was a split. What happened? Ten tribes, ten tribes formed what was called Israel, and they were in the northern part. Ten tribes. The other two tribes formed what was called Judah, and they were comprised of Judah and Benjamin. And that's what we're talking about here. Judah was the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, while Israel was the remaining ten tribes. But this message here was for the whole twelve tribes, collectively called Israel here. And basically, what we find here in Judah, their sins, and what we find in Israel, their sins, could be said of all of them. The fault that he found, that he highlighted, would belong to the whole 12 tribes of Israel. But he does mark out, in verses 4 and 5, Judah's sins. Now this is important because the prophet was wanting indirectly to have some status or to have some clout with them. He was from Judah. This was his part of where he lived. He lived not far from Jerusalem. He lived in that area that's called Judah. And he wasn't going to show any favoritism. He was going to outline the sins 
of the people in Judah, that he might have some credibility that he is a prophet who will speak the word of God regardless. He will not show favoritism. He will expose the sins of Judah as he will expose the sins of Israel. And therefore, when, it, when he would come to the main part of his mission, when he's speaking to the ten tribes of Israel, they cannot say to him, well, this man is showing favoritism. He doesn't say a word about the people of Judah. He's just picking on us. We don't need to listen to him. Well, that's not the case at all. And that's why he picks the sins of Judah. He doesn't want to be seen as one who shows favoritism. And this is something that is required of, of a gospel minister. He must not show favoritism. He must be able to preach the word of God without prejudice. And when he sees sins and faults, he must, under the word of God, declare that. That people indeed would know that this man is not a man who's out to please men. Instead, he's out to please God. He has a message. And he has something to say. And therefore, they are to listen to him. Also something that's worth bearing in mind here too, before we go into their particular sins, both the kingdoms, both Judah and Israel, at this time were enjoying prosperity. They had kings. They were serving kings who had long reigns. Uzziah, the king of Judah, he had a long reign. Jeroboam, who was the king of Israel, he had a, a long reign. He reigned for 41 years. And I think it's in the second kings, some chapter in second kings, it mentions his reign. He reigned for 41 years. How many verses do we find in the Bible that describe his reign? Seven. Seven verses describe his 41-year reign. And during that 41-year reign, the people were enjoying great prosperity, material prosperity. But morally and spiritually, they were in decline. And that's what the Bible looks to. The Bible does not look to uh, material prosperity as being a blessing Rather, it looks upon righteousness and holiness and conformity to the word of God as a blessing. And this man may have had a long reign and he may have implemented policies that brought about prosperity, material prosperity to the, the people of Israel, but it didn't figure with the Bible. It didn't figure with the word of God. Because during that period of time, there was a tremendous amount of spiritual and moral decline. Now the people, the people might think, well, here we are. We're prosperous. Our wallets are full. Our bellies are full. We're having a wonderful time. Surely then the blessing of God is upon us. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. God may give you a full belly. He may give you a bulging bank book. That doesn't mean to say you have the blessing of God upon your life at all. And for ourselves, friends, as a congregation, we are in a better position than we've ever been since the 10 years that I've been here. That's not a boast. 
That's a fact. Does that mean that God is blessing us? Does that mean that we are somewhat smug? Does that mean that we don't examine ourselves? Does that mean that our lives are pleasing to God? It doesn't. Let's be clear. Material prosperity does not signal spiritual prosperity. They thought it did, but no. Seven verses recording 41 years. That tells us something. Now he speaks to Judah. He highlights Judah's sins. Judah was ones who boasted. They boasted that they had the purity of worship. They had the temple. They had the sacrifices. They had the Levitical priesthood. They had the house of God that Solomon built. Those in Israel didn't have these things. They had their shrines in Dan and in Bethel. And their worship was, cor was corrupted. There's no doubt about that. Judah boasted. Oh well, you see these people in Samaria? That's in Israel. You see these people in Samaria? They don't worship God the way that we should. They don't worship God according to the word of God. We're far better than them. What does it say about Judah? I will not... Uh, verse 4, middle of verse, verse 4 of chapter 2, because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments, and their lies caused them to err, after the which their fathers have walked. These were the people who were proud of their temple worship, proud of their purity of worship, proud that they had the Levitical priesthood, Proud that they had a high priest. What does God say? Because they have despised the law of the Lord. It didn't meet with his approval at all. And have not kept his commandments. They have the word of God. They have the scriptures. Special revelation was given to them. They had it. But they didn't obey it. They despised the word of God and have not kept his commandments and their lies. That's their idols. That's what he's talking about there. You know, they had the purity of worship in one sense in Jerusalem, in the temple, but they also had their idolatry as well. They were putting everything into this. Oh, we'll have the worship of Jehovah, but we'll also have our idols as well. Their idols caused them to err after the which their fathers have walked. They were following men. They replaced the true worship of God following what their fathers have done before them. They feared men. 
They were like the ones the Lord Jesus Christ mentions. They were following the commandments of men. Friends, are we following the commandments of men? Are we? Are you? Let us not follow the commandments of men. We have the word of God. And as your minister has said to you on many occasions, you are free to do anything except sin. Anything except sin. And the Bible defines what sin is for us. So we're not left in ignorance. These people despised the word of God, had it, but despised it and, be, and wanted to follow in the footsteps of their fathers. Well, Judah then basically had sinned against God, had sinned against light, had sinned against revelation. Go back to the Gentiles, they hadn't got these, these things. They hadn't got these blessings. God, therefore, was going to visit them. Visit them because of the way they treated the blessings that he gave to them. The Gentiles would be judged. God's people would be judged also. As it says in the last verse we read, chapter 3, verse 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Solemn words. Well, that's Judah. He goes on in the remaining verses in, in this chapter 2. He, and he outlines Israel's sins. And basically he says three things here. He outlines Israel's present sins. What are they? Because they sold the righteous for silver, verse 6, and the poor for a pair of shoes that pant after the dust of the earth as the head of the poor and turn aside the way of the meek. Basically what's happening here is people with power and with authority and influence had been mistreating the poor. The judges, the courts were not treating the poor according to the law. They were being partial. And injustice, the judges were taking bribes and they were trampling upon the poor does it not sound very familiar to us today in our own land? Well, we don't have our own land here. We don't have our own land in this building. He is speaking to people like ourselves. Friends, how do we treat the poor? How do you treat the poor? How do you treat people who are poorer than yourself? Well, in Israel, friends, those who are high and mighty, those who had office, those who had power abused it. We have to ask ourselves as office bearers, do we lord it over the people? An office bearer, what a wonderful privilege it is to be a minister or an elder or a deacon, an office bearer in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a privilege. But we are not to lord over the people, over God's inheritance. We are to lead by example. We are to be ones who put 
the interests of the flock before our own interests. This is what's required. Power here was being corrupted, and the poor were suffering as a result. They were being trampled underfoot. It goes on. Another terrible sin. Sexual immorality, the second part of verse 7. And a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. Now, in Israel, they had their shrines in Dan and Bethel. And what inevitably happens when you introduce idolatry, immorality follows. And there were shrine prostitutes available. It's not a pleasant thing to speak about, but it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible for us. It's to warn us. These things happened. God's people really committed lewd and libidinous things in the name of religion, in the name of serving Jehovah. And what do we find here? Well, it's sexual immorality, it's fornication, it's adultery, it's incest, even all the filth of the day. Let this not be named among us. Let us flee fornication. Let us flee uncleanness. Let us switch off our computers and our televisions when we see things that are inappropriate. It doesn't take much to, to see something to spark off in the mind of any one of us. We're, we're not above these things. We have to crucify the flesh and the lust thereof. That's what's required of us. And we're not to pander to these things. We're not to be like the world. They were just like the world. They were just like the nations that God had driven out for them to occupy their land. And God was expecting something more from them. And sadly, they did not. Well, that was some of the present sins that he highlighted. And by the way, as a general comment, we're not to suppose that the sins that we have highlighted here in Judah and Israel and in the Gentile nations, we're not to assume that these were the only things. These were just snippets. The Gentiles were up to their necks in sin. And the likelihood is that those in Judah and those in Israel were also up to their neck in sins. Only some of them have been highlighted. What else do we notice from these verses? Well, if their present sins were highlighted, the prophet reminds them of their glorious past. What God has done for them. What do we find then? In verse 9, yet destroyed I the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath. 
What's he talking about here? Well, he's reminding them that he has brought them into the promised land. And the promised land was, was occupied by the Amorites and others. And it was the Lord who actually exterminated these seven nations to enable the, the people of God to go in and occupy the land. Yes, we know Joshua had to fight, that's true, but nevertheless, it was God who was with him, and he could never have done it if it wasn't for God. And therefore, he has them in the promised land. He doesn't mention until afterwards how they come out of Egypt, how he led them for 40 years through the wilderness, because he has them right in the promised land first, because their salvation was ultimately assured. God took them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. And that's the first thing that's mentioned here. Because when God begins a work, he will take them into the promised land. And that's what happened. And they are to be reminded of the glorious past. They are to be reminded what God has done for them. And Christian, this should be an incentive to every single one of us to turn away from our sins when we consider what God has done for us. Were we any different? Were you any different from the others in your street? You have been saved. You have been brought to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was it because something in you? Was it because you were better? No. Not at all. Are you then going to continue to live in sin and despise the word of God when you consider all that God has done in his grace? Consider your past. You have been taken, as the psalmist says, from the dunghill. From the dunghill, not a pleasant place, a terrible place, but you have been taken from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. This is a wonderful incentive then to stir ourselves up and not to be like the world. The world today is, what is it? It's immersed, it's saturated with sexual immorality of all kinds, things that we wouldn't even like to speak about in public or in private. Yet, we are to be different. We are to be clean. God was good to them. And God gave them the prophets and the Nazarites. He saw them erring. He saw them strain. What is not going to live like this? You're the people of God. You're going to be different. The prophet was going to, did highlight their sins. And he would tell them to repent and to believe. And the Nazarite, what was the purpose of him? Well, mainly on this context, the Nazarite was there to remind them of their devotion to God. Here was a Nazarite in their community, and he was reminding them of someone who was devoted to God, or who was holy, who was set apart. And how did they like these things? Well, they didn't like these things at all. They told the prophets, don't prophesy. We don't want to hear what you, you have to say from God. Shut your mouth. That's what they said. 
And to the Nazarite, what did they do? They gave him wine, something that he was forbidden to take while he took the Nazarite view. They wanted people to compromise. They didn't want these symbols of the presence of God among them. They didn't want a man of God. They didn't want a preacher. They wanted someone who would say to them, you can carry on doing what you want. God is quite happy with you. But it was a blessing, friends, that there was someone who would correct them. Well, third thing we would notice then about Israel, and very briefly, <clears throat> we've noticed their present sins. We've noticed their glorious past. Now, very briefly, in the remaining verses, Israel's terrible future. Judgment was going to come upon them. I'm not going to read through it, but it's basically telling them judgment's going to come upon them and they're not going to escape. The flight shall perish from the swift. Those who can run fast, they'll not be able to run fast enough to escape this judgment. The strong shall not strengthen his force, neither shall the mighty deliver himself. Neither shall he stand that handleth the bow, and he that is swift of foot shall not deliver himself. Neither shall he that rideth the horse deliver himself. Why? Because God is going to send terrible judgment upon them, upon Israel, upon the ten tribes, and that judgment came. And they were taken into captivity by the king of Assyria, and they never returned. Never. That's how God deals with his people. Because their sins in his sight are worse than the sins of the heathen, of the idolaters. Why? Because they have so many blessings, the people of God. And God has entered into a covenant with them. And God in a real sense, knows them, loves them, like he doesn't love the other nations. That's why we read in Luke chapter 12, and that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. Here is the lesson. Here it is. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Judah, Israel, and the scriptures, the prophets, the Nazarites, the covenants, blessings upon blessing upon blessing. The professing Christians in part tonight have more, more blessings, a complete canon of scripture. The way of salvation is clear. 
Christ has been crucified. He is risen. He is glorified. He is exalted. He's coming again. We have so many more privileges. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. Repentance is required. Faith in the Lord Jesus is required. Fidelity to the word of God is required by the people of God and there will be no excuses and no exceptions. Because our sins in the sight of God are worse than those heathen around us. Amen.